Hey there, we don't have a show for this week, but we will start off with brand new shows and some really exciting new content that I can't wait to reveal to you um, in the new year. But uh, we'll be back on January 3rd. Until that time, we're going to be doing some best of shows. And today we'll be doing the best of guest shows. So in the past year, we've had people like James Lint, uh, and we'll show you some of the excerpts from that conversation. But then I've also had Stovall Weems come on and he discussed what took place at Celebration Church. And after our conversation together, Celebration Church took down some of their accusational documents against Stovall. So a really insightful conversation about the church and about what's going on in the modern day church. And then also Doug Beaumont came on the show and he's a Catholic apologist. And I think we have a very insightful conversation about the magisterium and where Catholics seem to have beliefs that are not biblically centered and where the authority to do that comes from. And then we'll also bring on Carl Truman, who is perhaps the author of one of the greatest books in the last 10 years, if not more, certainly a seminal book of our time, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And he comes on the show to talk about Christians giving satisfying answers to things that are going on in the culture presently. But then he also is an expert on the subject of identity and how we understand the self, because I can't think of a more important conversation right now with everything that is going on in our world. So I hope you enjoy the best of guest show. Meaning in trying to serve the embodiment of logos, and Marxism has the idea of pathos. Now, when you have the idea at the deepest level, or simplest level, I should say, what is the, the meaning of a religion like Christianity is to serve God. And then the rest of it's figuring out what that means, right? That's yeah. what you study scripture for. That's what you, the whole th- theologies are for, is to figure out what does it mean to serve God. But the purpose, the telos is clear, is to serve God. Well, Marx's religion says there is no God. In fact, man creates man, and man creates man by creating a society so that he lives in, and then the society defines social relations, and those social relations socialize and shape man, and so the purpose of man is to create a society that's becoming increasingly humanized, as he put it, a humanized society. A, uh, humanism is what he called this philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so the goal is to increasingly humanize man by changing society so that it changes man on a path that he said becomes increasingly socialist. And man becomes socialist man at the end of this process. And society becomes socialist society. And in fact, they say this in their own language, that they're rebuilding the garden that we've been ejected from. Herbert Marcuse, in his 1955 book, Eros and Civilization, says specifically that it's our birthright to be in the garden. And that we were ejected from the garden wrongfully. And the way that we get back into the garden is to take a second bite from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so that... By the way, it's Gnosticism. It is a Gnostic cult, but it's based off of a god of pathos that's supposed to give you the... That's where you get the actual Gnostic knowledge is through pathos. So you don't think it's a stretch to consider Marxism as a cult? It's a total cult. It's a Gnostic cult, absolutely. And it uses magic spells like alchemy to to achieve what it's doing. It's totally a cult, and it's an inversion of the Bible and of the gospel both. Yeah. You have Marx literally acting as the serpent if it's Gnostic because he's saying that which you know you believe about the the order of the world and the, the God that has created it was all a lie. And if you actually just seize the secret knowledge, you get to be like him. And that's mm-hmm. what he wants to keep you away from. That's the lie in Genesis. And then what you have is, like I already explained, you have an inversion of 
of uh, the Gospel of John, where you now are replacing the Logos with the Pathos so and recre- recreating a whole new religion. Well, so, so this is why I think that a post-Christian nation is a prime candidate for yes, what we're seeing. Yes, because you're not serving, you're, you are no longer reaching most people and connecting with them with the idea of serving a sovereign, eternal, uh, totally transcendent God that's not part of the universe. You're now telling them meaning exists in creating society the way that we can imagine and reimagine it. And we can imagine a perfect social society. And your meaning is found by taking part in the process of becoming a society that makes the right kind of people, that makes the right kind of society, that makes the right kind of people, until we get ourselves back to society mm-hmm. becoming a humanized garden yeah. out of the jungle. And so the meaning becomes in the tap into your pathos, which is very seductive, and then recreate the world in your own image, holding yourself up. In fact, in, in the same essay, which is Marx's critique of Hegel's philosophy of the right, in the introduction, in the exact same, like, on the exact same page, depending on how the pages are written, um, where he famously says that religion is the sigh of an oppressed people, it is the opium of the yeah, masses, yeah, right? Is. Everybody's heard that. It's, it's something, it's a palliative that people give themselves so that they won't... Uh, seize upon their suffering, their pathos, and then turn it into revolutionary action. He says like three paragraphs down or two paragraphs down from that, that that religion is the false sun that man puts in orbit around himself until he realizes that he is his own true sun at the center of his own being. Man made into God. Man making himself into God through this process. So there's a, if you are... Which you may know by now, which is exactly what we believe Satan says of himself in the Old Testament. Yes, absolutely. So I say the serpent. And so this is exactly what we're seeing here. And what you find is that's a very meaning-laden project. And so people who have lost the idea that the man, to paraphrase from, from Viktor Frankl, that man's search for meaning has something to do with figuring out what this transcendent, deep, perfect deity is that we're now supposed to serve. It is now, wait, no, I seize the reins of understanding the social conditions of the time, and I know what the possible trajectory is, I imagine a perfect future, and I commit myself to the class role of working to create that. That's a very meaning-laden project. It's also a very now project, whereas serving God, when you're having your moments of despair, feels very abstract. He feels very remote. People cry out, God, God, where are you? You know, you read the, the, the story of the New Testament is basically the Israelites screwing up over and over again, and then somebody finally crying out, God, where are you? And God's like, look, do this thing, and we'll get you back on the prophet. And that's a prophet, and then everything kind of comes back on, and then they screw up again, and they get it wrong again, and right again, wrong again. Do you, do you feel comfortable being called a prophet? I think that I've heard stranger uh, <laughs> because you're actually serving in that role i want to say something to i know you. i think about the irony of that a little bit yeah sometimes <laughs> I, I want to say something real quick um going back to pathos for just a moment um because uh we're seeing if you want to call it this and this sounds pejorative and it's not meant to but the useful idiots of the uh evangelical pastor or the conservative pastor um that is doing the yeoman's work of the progressive christian uh, comes in the way of pathos because they've been convinced that you're a good person or that you're sympathetic and you're empathetic, all things that are very important to Christians, if you echo these talking points that are clearly leftist. Like if you echo Black Lives Matter, that's how you show not only your woke credentials, but that's how you show you truly are a benevolent person. So this is what we're falling for in the Christian church so very often. So I want to I wanna give you a couple quotes, and this may be a little bit leading, but I want your honest opinion as you hear them. And these from are from prominent uh, evangelical white pastors. Mm-hmm. And so this is from one of them. He says, as a white pastor, 
So already we got identity in there, identity politics. I want to lay aside more of my preferences. I don't want to speak on issues popular to white followers and stay silent on issues not popular to non-white followers. As a white pastor, I have blind spots. Spots. I am part of the problem. And then two more. Um, Pathos. Uh, the Bible gives this refrain over and over and over again. Let the nations be glad. Let the nations be glad. Let the nations be glad. This is not about a group of white folks in English. Now, the problem I have with this is that every Christian knows that. Every Christian knows this is not speaking to white English people. And so it leaves us saying, why are you even saying that? Why are you even bringing that up since no white people actually think God's like, by the way, this is only for you whiteies. Uh, no, no white evangelical believes that. Um, and then the same pastor went on to say this in the documentary that you were in. If we find, uh, and by the way, that is um, by what standard fantastic. Um, if we find an Anglo eight, speaking of like uh, leadership scores, I forget what the scale is, but needless to say, if we do a leadership score for people we want to hire, if we find an Anglo eight and an African-American seven, which one do we want? We want the African-American seven. Mm. When you hear some of that stuff infiltrating the evangelical church, what does it make you think? I mean, since I'm talking in a Christian context right now, I'm like, I'm, I'm all up in the gospel. I hate to put it that. I know it's weird. You, you build me as an atheist, um, but I am. I'm all up in the gospel. So one of the first things I think when they're making these declarations, the so-called positionality must be intentionally engaged, which is your social position in the structural hierarchy created by the Marxist understanding of, of the structure of society. I, as a white guy, blah, 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 blah. Well, what I think is, you know, to the hypocrites who pray in public, you know, you've got your reward. There it is. Yeah. You've got your reward. And so for everybody who actually cares and wants to enter the kingdom, you should go go to your room and pray in private and into prayers to go, our Father who art in heaven, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that. Another thing that I think is I think of the story with Jesus on the mountain with Satan's arm around his shoulder saying everything you can see will be yours mm-hmm. if you just go along with what I'm offering yeah. you. And so we're going to go along with the, with the program of the world that's being offered here. We're going to have this whole new world order. And, you know, if you participate, you're going to be thought well of in it. And if you don't participate, well, too bad. But these pastors are saying, deal. But that's not what Jesus did. He rebuked Satan and said, you know, that he has something better and get out. Yeah. Like you don't even you know what you're talking about. So I think well, of these man kinds does not of stories, live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So you're that's following right. a different logos. Well, you're following a pathos is what you're following. You're, you're tapping it, but you're also following the idea. The pathos is the madness of crowds as Douglas Murray named it. Mm-hmm. You're following, uh, what seems like is the right thing to do is, is you know, according to some, temporary standard of society in fact a manufactured standard of society you read herbert marcuse and he says we're going to create a new sensibility and a new morality and we're going to interject these new values into people until they need them until they become vital needs by changing man at the very biological level the level of his basic needs so that he can't live without socialism that's the essay on liberation mm-hmm. and so what you're doing is they're playing along with that program and whether somebody's coming put their arm around the shoulder and offered them a you know, everything you can see will be yours in the new world. I don't know, but this is a Faustian bargain that they've made. And they have been sucked in through the, their pathos. They're talking about you have to care, you have to feel, you have to this. Think about how these people would feel if you didn't. How would people, you know... I, my colleague, Helen Pluckrose, when she wrote one of her papers for her master's thesis, a lot of people don't know this, or for her master's degree, she wrote this explanation of um, Othello, 
Shakespeare's Othello. Mm -hmm. And so there's a relationship there between Othello and Desmodona. But it turns out her argument, which is historically grounded, is that it was not a scandal because it was a cross-racial relationship. The idea that a, that a brown person or a dark brown, or an African person and a, a European yeah. person would be... He was a Moor, that's right. And that, that it, that's relevant. That's not scandalous, that relationship. The scandal was that it was a Christian and a Moor, a mm. Muslim. And so it was the cross-religious. And so she wrote this, and her advisor said, you know, her professor said, well, this is historically correct, but how would an African-American in the United States feel to read this? The denial of their <laughs> yeah. racism. Feel. It's crazy. It's the pathos. And mm -hmm. so the, 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 the seduction is, is there through the pathos. Yeah. And um, that's what I see happening with these people. And the other story, when you're reading this, is like, um, that I think of again. I told you. So I went. I'm in the church, so I went straight to the gospel, like as I, as one should. And as a good atheist. Good as job. a good atheist. I'm a, and so um, I think about the story where you know Jesus is picking up sticks on the Sabbath, and they're like, "Don't you know the law?" And he's like, "I am the law." Yeah. And it's like these people are like, "Don't you know the new law of society?" But Jesus said, "I am the law." Yeah. Right. And so they've lost their path. They've lost their path. Mm -hmm. The enemy in the Bible is described as the deceiver, as the prince of lies. And so pathos has taken them off of their route, and they've accepted a nest of lies that feeling is more important, and that the law of man in the given era is more important, and then the pharisaical, you know, attending to all the details mm -hmm. is what matters, or I guess it's pharisaical, rather than rather than, you know, keeping your eyes fixated on the Father, as Jesus said that he was doing and that you should do through him. Okay, so so I got to, because we're running out of time, I really want to get to two last things. So the, the, as quickly as possible, and I know this is kind of like an important one uh, to do quickly, but what is the chief danger of Marxism? Because, okay, so we've explained kind of where these things are coming culturally. We see kind of like the, the, demolish, the demolishing of women's sports. We see critical race theory. We see radical gender ideology in the trans movement. We see all these things going on in society. Um, we track that down to Marxism. And then still, I still think some people say, oh, Marxism, whatever, you know, we, we created a, a society that's kind of resilient against such things. You know, that's what the Constitution's for, whatever they may say. Mm. But, um, but what is the chief danger of Marxism? And I'll just tell you for me, what I, what I come back to, it's kind of like postmodernism, Marxism, and there are similarities there. But the, the chief danger, I think, is, is relativism is it's full-on assault of objective truth, almost like what you were alluding to when you were talking about the Logos and the importance of, of, of truth over emotions. Um, I think relativism is the kind of thing that causes um, parents to raise small, small children with gender confusion because it gives them the woke virtues of registering on TikTok and getting likes and all those kind of things. I, I think it does no limit of really, really great harm to people if we don't understand basic biological realities like man and woman and those kind of things. Yeah. And all of that I trace back to, and that's just one example for the many things that we could talk about. I trace that back to relativism and how dangerous that is. I think that's dangerous for Christians because we are a people that believe that the truth is necessary to come to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth is a, 
that that is true and that you need an understanding of truth to accept the gospel. You shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. Mm. So you can't have a warped understanding of reality and have a clear pathway to the gospel. You need to know truth. Relativism is a full-on assault of that. But I think that that goes broader too, just to society at large. When we yeah. start alienating objective truth as a, as a category that doesn't even exist, like the postmodernists would, I, I think we see the kind of unfolding of what's going on in our society and it becomes dangerous uh, for each and every one of us. So what would you say is the chief danger if we can kind of like whittle it down to one thing, to a fine point of say, this is why Marxism must be withstood? I mean, what you said is a means to an end and that end is a complete totalitarian system that serves a very small number of people and enslaves the rest of the planet. Mm -hmm. So the truth sets us free or you can say like Jesus is the, the way, the truth and the life. And why is that? Because uh, the truth is ever the enemy of all tyranny. Arbitrary shifting relative power is tyranny. It's mm -hmm. where tyranny flows from. And so the point of the relativism is actually just to create shifting sand where whoever's in power can tell you what you have to believe this week and if they want to change it next week. So relativism is a means to an end that takes you away. When Jesus comes and says that, you know, the truth is, is the, I am the truth and the way, right? So those things are the same thing. What they're saying is that that's how, you, that's, and that's where freedom comes from. That's because it is the opposite of arbitrary power. It is grounded power. Yeah. Power rooted in actual truth is grounded. So what the chief risk is then is you're going to relativism is just a pathway to losing your society and having a global slave society with a very small number of people and if you don't if you want a preview of what it looks like i could say go read 1984 or something dramatic but no just look at china mm -hmm. and so then we look for example in china at the uyghur population you know some however many three million or thereabouts muslims that are uh you know what is it, I guess, Eastern Chinese, and that they have been now put into prison camps or literally in concentration camps or literally having their organs harvested for what? Having a religion outside of the Marxist faith that the CCP mandates. And so it, that could just as easily be Christianity that's not playing the progressive game. Yeah. So the conservative Christians end up having their organs harvested for whatever, you know, or what it could, it, it could easily go to that and it can go there very, very quickly. So the relativism, you are, your intuition is correct. The point with the radical subjectivity or radical relativism, it has a theological point in Marxism, but a practical point is that whoever controls that which you get to call true can seize absolute power and can do crazy things with it. What's going on in culture sure seems at the foreground to be a critique of Christianity. Um, and you, I think it was alluded to in that conversation with Colin that perhaps that uh, the reason the West or America specifically is post-Christian is because maybe we've lost that battle. Um, and, and, and I want to throw something your way and just kind of hear what you have to say about that. I think perhaps that the reason the culture is post-Christian is not necessarily because we've engaged in the culture war and loss, but perhaps because we did not provide soul-satisfying answers to the biggest questions of our age. I think, by and large, uh, what we did is we produced the megachurch as a response to some of the biggest questions of our, our day, which would be uh, human sexuality, meaning, existence, race. You know, how do we have a biblical, redeemed perspective on these things? And I think, by and large, I don't know that the church really gave soul-satisfying answers in my generation, which would be millennial, and then I, I think it's fair to say your generation too, which would be Gen X, I don't know that we really did a sufficient job of engaging in those cultural ideas. And I think, maybe anecdotally based upon experience, I view 
the rejection of Christianity in the culture largely because we didn't engage like we should have. Now, um, whether that looks like what we're doing today or, or, or not, I think is a, is a big question that um, maybe for another podcast. But, but if we look at the culture war just simply as this, not otherizing or not treating the, uh, the other as enemy, but rather a, um, a battle for ideas or fighting bad ideas with good ideas. And from a Christian perspective, fighting bad ideas with redeemed ideas. I look at your book and I think to myself, boy, this is a great, um, this is a great tool in the toolbox in order to be able to do that. So I'm curious about what you think your, the role of your book is in the kind of greater auspices of the culture war, or if there is a critique that you have about that, um, what is it and, and how does your book fit into something that doesn't, that doesn't coincide with the culture war? Yeah, I think there's a couple of, couple of comments there. First of all, generally in culture war, I think that the Bible itself uses martial language. So yeah. the idea that we're in a war is, is not in and of itself a bad thing. Really, when, when we talk about culture war, often we're talking about strategy and tactics rather than the, the bigger phenomena. There's no doubt in my mind that the world is a spiritual battleground. The Bible yeah. makes that very clear. Uh, second thing uh, is I think that you're right, uh, in what you say about how we've lost ground. I, I'd put it this way. I think that for many years, for many generations, the, the basic moral framework or instincts of Western society tracked pretty closely to the moral instincts of Christianity. Right. So homosexuality was regarded as wrong. It may have been regarded as wrong for the wrong reasons. Right. But the basic moral code of the West tracked with uh, the basic Christian ethical code and the reasons for that the the, or, the the christian origins of the western ethical code i think what that did was it made us lazy mm. because if if you if you don't have to think out and argue and justify a position in the public square you then don't. you don't you don't yeah. do it and, and you grow lazy and i think particularly protestantism grew very lazy in terms of thinking about these big questions so i think you're you're right that protestantism in particular, has been caught terribly short by what's happened in our culture, the sudden flipping in our culture to a very antithetical kind of morality from a Christian perspective. Uh, where does my book fit into this? Well, in part, there are various ways I could think of it. One, it's it's an attempt to appropriate some of the best of Catholic thinking on this, because mm -hmm. Catholics with their natural law tradition yeah. uh, and their strong tradition of social teaching agree or disagree with it, they've got it. They have a resource to draw on. And I think that it, one thing that Protestants, uh, I'm grateful now to Catholicism for, is the certain resources they were able to draw on. Yeah, Secondly, I, agree. I think that you know, I'd want to distinguish the culture war. So the culture war takes place on at least two levels. Mm -hmm. On one level, there's the, there's the battle for policy within and institutions within the broader culture. Uh, and that's fought through the ballot box. It's fought in D.C. It's fought in all of the usual political ways. Uh, but there's also, I think, a, a battle for the minds that's taking place yeah. at an individual and personal level in the classroom, for example, where I teach. And my approach there is I need to be persuasive. Uh, if I'm standing on a, a political platform, I need to make a good case for my political platform. I need to win votes. If I'm in the classroom, I'm not winning votes. Mm -hmm. What I need to do is persuade students who are maybe sitting on the fence on key issues that the traditional Christian position 
is a reasonable one to hold and it can be held by people who don't knee-jerk hate their neighbors and who don't engage in caricaturing their opponents so what what i what i try to do in the book is is offer a, a an approach to issues of sexuality which are among some of the most hot button issues in our culture where at least from my perspective i say if i've got a gay student in class i'm not going to feel embarrassed about saying to them read that chapter in my book they're not going to feel that they were uh, mm. talked about hatefully they're not going to feel that they were despised they're not going to feel that their viewpoint or their arguments were belittled or treated lightly i i want the book to be a model of engagement with the big ideas of the day in a way that avoids the the kind of slanging match and soundbite engagement that avoids the refusing to acknowledge the good faith of anybody who disagrees with me mm-hmm. that so characterizes much of the public debates on both sides today sure yeah no i think that's great and and i think if you you need two things to actually be able to ch- change something you need information because you cannot change that which you know nothing about and then you need care you need to be concerned with that thing you you need to actually have a, a heart for it and a concern for it and actually care for it carefully and i think i think you are right i think too in, in the past if if Christians might be uh, criticized for something is that when they did engage, they might have not have done so with the greatest of, of footing or with straw manning arguments and not fully understanding things. So I, that's why I'm so grateful for your book, because I, I truly do view it as uh, not from a pejorative sense. And it's, again, such loaded language, but I view it as a great... Uh, I said tool before, but I'll go ahead and say I view it as a great weapon for the the culture war in terms of being as informed as possible as you can with what is going on in the culture. Um, and and so with that being said, um, let's talk about the modern self. Now, you spent hours upon hours in a book discussing this, but uh, and now I'm going to ask you to do the impossible thing of succinctly uh, describing. But um, could you succinctly describe for us exactly what is the modern self or yeah. how we have come to um, understand human nature in, in the present? What, what is, what's kind of like a definition for the way we view yeah. the self? Well, the modern self, first of all, just the way we're using the self here, of course, is not the common sense way of, you know, I know I'm me and, and you're you, that sort of basic self-consciousness. What we mean by the self is how we understand ourselves as individuals in relation to the world around us, in relation to other people around us, how we would articulate the purpose of life, how we would understand happiness, all of these different things. And my argument in the book is that the modern self is characterized by what sociologists call expressive individualism. And to put expressive individualism in, in a, to, to express it simply, an ex, expressive individualism is the notion that every individual has an inner core of feeling And in order to be authentic, I need to be able to give outward expression. One might say I need to be able to live outwardly consistent with my inner feelings. Now, it would take a long time to 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 elaborate why this is the case. But that notion of the self carries with it other implications. Uh, It will tend uh, to to give me a view of myself as autonomous or unencumbered. Mm -hmm. In other words, that I don't have natural dependencies or responsibilities towards others. My primary responsibility is towards myself and my own authenticity. It will lead to a position where, uh, in, you know, if you'd asked my grandfather, what does oppression look like for my grandfather? It would have been 
you know, somebody restricting his body or somebody taking his money or his job from him, it would have been a very outward kind of thing. When we think about oppression now, we often think about words people will use about other people, uh, epithets that we might apply that are deemed to be hurtful or damaging or traumatizing. But again, that derives from a notion where the real me is this core of feelings. Mm -hmm. So the most significant things that can be done to me are the things that affect that inner core of feeling or stop me giving full expression outwardly to that inner core of feeling. And that, I think, is the broader context for a lot of modern identity politics, Think particularly of sexual identity politics. Uh, a lot of people you know, thought, well, hey, we, we don't want homosexuality outlawed. We don't want people to go to prison for that. Mm-hmm. But we oppose gay marriage because that would water down marriage. Well, for the express individual who identifies as a, as a homosexual, that resolution is never going to be good enough because to deny me as a homosexual man married is to is to tolerate me rather than accept me. Mm-hmm. And if you tolerate somebody, you sort of allow them to exist, but you don't fully affirm them as who they are. So expressive individualism actually lies at the core of a lot of modern identity politics as well. But I still, I guess, and this is maybe a, a discussion for another day because it'd take us down a long road, but I still have questions as to how that infallibility is discerned and imputed um, is, is, is a little bit of a question for me. Um, but because we do have to move on, let me just ask this final question because this is the big one and I can, I can imagine that uh, you're going to... Uh, dismantle some other presuppositions that I may have in this as well. But so Mariology, all right? So there's the talking point that I've heard from so many evangelicals, and I'm going to say that you don't even have to destroy this presupposition because I know better. Um, but I want, I want to hear it from you, um, that Catholics worship Mary as a, um, as a, as a God, that, that they worship in, they don't just honor Mary and venerate Mary, but they actually worship her as a co-redemptress and and as a kind of like co-God with Jesus. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the easier answer is just to say, no, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and move on. Right. Yeah. Um, but as, as someone who, and, and I don't think I ever was like that confused about Catholicism, but um, I, I will freely admit without question that you know, Catholics can be pretty over the top <laughs> when it comes to, to Marian devotion. Um, but there's a number of things that I think kind of mitigate like the knee-jerk response that a lot of evangelicals have. Um, and I think part of it is to realize that the Catholic hierarchy of the world is, is a lot deeper than I think it is for a lot of evangelicals. We don't just have creation and God. Um, Creation and God are distinct, of course, completely distinct. I mean, that's like super Catholic doctrine. Um, but the, it's not completely flattened out either on the creation side of things. There are things that are higher, angels. There are saints. There are people that form kind of a hierarchy um, in the Christian world. And the person who is at the top of it is the mother of Jesus, the mother of God, um, which is also dogma, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so there are levels of you know, veneration, whatever you want to call it, that I think a lot of evangelicals just aren't comfortable with because we tend to have zero or 100 and that's it. You know, there is nothing in between. Um, And so when you see somebody, you know, carrying around a statue of Mary or putting flowers on it or singing, you know, Ave Maria in church, it just, you just, "Ah," you know, like it just makes you lose your mind (laughs) because 
as evangelicals, we don't do those kinds of things for anybody except God. You know, in fact, we won't even do some of it for God, you know, like especially the statues. Right. But don't you, I mean, let's just I know this is a loaded question, too. But don't you think that there's a um, there's an important sentiment there to say, um, obviously, I know we don't need to freak out and overreact, but there are some things that obviously are solely relegated to God. And I got to be honest with you, I've seen um, now this is a more a kind of a non uh, I don't want to say non-traditional, but I've seen Mexican Catholics who sometimes intermix superstition with their Catholicism mm -hmm. do things that really make me uncomfortable with the way that they 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 literally worship Mary. Well, I don't I don't like putting literally worship at the end of that because the only way you can know that is to know their hearts. Um and we don't. We well, don't I'm just talking that. about the words that come out of their mouth when they're singing songs to her and stuff like that. Okay, so do, do, do they ever say we worship you? Um, no, but they yeah. they give so, her give her divine attributes that belong to God. Okay, well, we, we can look at that too. I think that's a different issue, different problem. But as far as like the veneration goes, yeah. um, one thing I, I always try to do, um, and I got a whole book on this, by the way, which I'll, I'll do my commercial later. Yeah, yeah. Um, is I, I first try to tie it into something that is a little bit more normal with the evangelical experience. Okay. So for example, in my good old Southern Baptist conservative church back in North Carolina, you know, on certain national holidays, you know, we would sing as part of our hymns, you know, songs to America, basically, you know, and we'd have the flag up there behind the altar and we'd be saluting and putting our hands on our hearts and doing all these kinds of things. And that was considered totally normal because we we're just, you know, we're a good American church, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, that kind of makes me uncomfortable too, by the way, but nonetheless. Well, yeah. And that's what I'm getting at is like, imagine if you didn't have that strong nationality and you came into the church and, and you're watching these Baptists pray and, and, and worship God and sing songs to Jesus. And then all of a sudden they're singing songs to a flag <laughs> yeah. and, and, they're, and they're, you know, it's like, well, wait a minute, you just, you just worship God by singing a song and now you're singing a song to a flag. So obviously that's worship, but see, logically that doesn't actually connect. Okay. Um, just because, you know, all, you know, all singing doesn't become worship just because some singing is worship. So there's at least room there to understand that, yeah, we can do a lot of things toward Mary, if you will, that we would also do toward God um, and, and not cross the line into worship. Now, exactly what that means i mean you, you know you can get into dulia hyperdulia and all of these you know catholic distinctions and, and theologies yeah whether or not that you know mexican grandma up there crying and bringing flowers to the statue and, and all that kind of stuff is is worshiping i get that it kind of looks like that um but if there is still a distinction in their mind between what is owed to God and what is owed to Mary and what is owed to other saints and what is owed to each other and, and to the American flag and whatever else, um, I think there's a much wider range of acceptable actions than most evangelicals would admit. Sure. Because we're just not used to it. I'm, I'm for it until they cross the line of like in, um, uh, perfection or perpetual virginity and stuff like that, because that's just stuff we don't know. Uh, that's that stuff that comes from scripture. Well, not everything we know comes from scripture, though, right? So, you know, you, you've got very old traditions that that argue for certain interpretations of scripture that would work. Um, if you've got an issue with with some kind of divine attribute that can't possibly uh, function even by analogy with a human being being said of Mary, that that would be a different problem. Yeah. 
Um, but again, I don't see anybody, at least nothing official in the church. I mean, there, there may be some person that, that thinks something wrong or writes a book even. Um, but you don't, you don't have people saying that Mary is infinite. You know, they don't say that she's eternal. They don't say that she's the creator. Uh, you know, the, the attributes of God are, are not applied to Mary. Is she, sin- is she sinless to the Catholic in the way that Jesus is sinless? Not in the way that, no, because he, he was sinless by nature. She was protected from sin by being um, immaculately conceived. And so without the stain of original sin at birth, um, and then also not having committed any sins. Mm-hmm. I would say Jesus could not have because by nature he was God. Right. So there's no way he could have possibly sinned because it's just logically and metaphysically impossible. So I don't think Mary was sinless in that way. It was more by fact. Okay. Is she sinless? In the, is she, so maybe I'll ask this and then, but basically I'm asking you to define what you mean by that. Is she sinless in the way that I am sinless? Well, you're not sinless. I'm well, I'm sinless. Like in the sense that I've been justified before God in the evangelical way of understanding things, but how, so, how, yes, so, yeah. so define for me how she is sinless from the Catholic perspective. So the, the, um, the salvation that Jesus won for us on the cross is applied to Mary at her conception. So that's the doctrine of immaculate conception. Okay. Is that, is that basically like what happens to a baby when it gets baptized, you know, in the evangelical world, you know, what happens when you say the sinner's prayer, what, whatever that moment is where original sin is gone and now you are saved that happens to her uh, in the womb. So she comes out sinless, but then it also is the case that she never actually commits a sin. Mm-hmm. So that that's that's what we believe. Okay. So and um and I know I don't want to go too too far down this rabbit trail because I know you and it's not a rabbit trail but too far down this road, um because I know I gotta let you go. But um, where do you do you believe that there is sufficient biblical um evidence for that belief? Um no I I don't think there's almost you know almost any. Okay. <laughs> um you know that really I appreciate comes, the response. Yeah. Well, I mean. But again, that, that's kind of like, you know, arguing with a Mormon that they can't prove their beliefs from the Bible. Well, of course they can't because they get it from the Book of Mormon. So the question really is, is the Book of Mormon trustworthy? Correct. Um, so in the same way, um, you know, you can say, well, you know, she was called full of grace. Well, what does that mean? OK, well, an interpretation of that would would be like the Immaculate Conception. Um, but no, I, I don't think it's there. I don't think it's not there. Um, I don't think the scripture talks about it one way or the other. So nobody really has the high ground there. Um but when we look at church history and we look at what people, what the church has pretty much always taught about Mary, then it clearly falls on the side of sinlessness. So, you know, that is one of the things, you know, there are a couple, you know, pretty strong dogmas of the church that, that don't have really super great scriptural support. Um, but again, the canon of scripture doesn't have scriptural support. So, you know, for, for me, that's why it keeps coming back to that is mm-hmm. that once I realized how God worked out the canon and orthodoxy, and I decided, you know what, if the church wasn't infallible, we're all in trouble. Yeah. So much of the rest of this just becomes such a non-issue because um, I think in order for me thing. to argue successfully against the magisterium here, well, then I'm getting rid of all this other stuff that I don't, I don't want to get rid of. So, um, yeah, but I, I don't have any problem with the fact, yeah, there are some things the church teaches that if all you ever did was read, you know, the 66 books of the Protestant Bible, you would probably not come up with this as being a dogma. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Well, I, I would just say this, I uh, and I'm just going to do this for example's sake, not to throw a bomb out there, but um, I think that there is little, sparse, partial 
but I do think there is some evidence to uh, for a closed canon within Scripture. Um, so, for instance, uh, um, I believe it is. Oh, I, I'm going to say Paul. Oh, Paul says uh, something to the effect of uh, he's talking about. Um, another apostle's writing, and he equates that with Scripture. Yeah, he's uh, talking about Peter's writings. Peter's writings, really, okay. Really yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm just doing Peter this says that about Paul. So Peter says that about Paul. Peter says that about Paul, that's right. Yeah, he yeah. says his diff- his writings are difficult to understand, and as, as are the, all the, the Scriptures. scriptures. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, yeah. that, that is, there's that equivalence between other Scripture and what, what Paul is writing. So we have that kind of internal evidence of the Scripture stating that the Scripture— um, is uh, that what we have in terms of scripture is what the church considered as scripture at that at that time. Um, yeah, but ultimately it becomes an issue of, of history because most of the books don't have that. Mm-hmm. And even, even if we know, you know, going in, okay, well, the writings of St. Paul are all scripture. Okay, but which ones are his writings? There's there's disputes about that too. Yeah. Um, you know, the gospels don't name their authors. Uh, James, you know, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Um, you know, there's been questions about who really wrote, you know, a lot of these things. Um, so I just say, like, I, believe me, I've tried very hard <laughs> to reverse engineer the New Testament canon in order to avoid, you know, having to trust the church. And, and there's just there's no way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, the best, very best writers on the subject end up basically admitting somehow God told everybody what it was. Yeah, because there's just there's just no um, scientific, if you will, method um, to get the New Testament canon that we have. Yeah. Yeah. Um... uh, So I I agree with that. And I think um, ultimately I was just saying that just to kind of say there's going to be discrepancies as there will be in or disagreements, I should say, um, with as there is in almost any area of life. But I will say that as I have tried to charitably investigate and think on the Catholic Church, the differences between them, I really have come away with... um, with an appreciation, the more I have done that. doesn't mean that I agree with everything. Um, I don't, I love my wife and I don't agree with everything she does, but, um, (laughs) but, uh, but I have a superficial understanding of Catholicism, have a deeper understanding of church history. Um, and I've loved it as I've studied it more. I came away with an appreciation for liturgy. I think quite frankly, if I could fight for anything, um, I, I would say that there needs to be, a. an evangelical liturgy. I think we've desperately lost reverence for God because we've absolutely done away with all sense of liturgy in our churches, and I don't know that we understand reverence anymore. And I almost I almost admire the Catholic Church for that sense of reverence that they've protected that I think comes at least from liturgy and probably more. Um, and then I, I would say too, and I may get in trouble for this one, I have an appreciation for confession. Um, it's an obvious biblical thing that evangelicals have a problem with too. Now there's some particulars about confession that I, that I um, take issue with with the Catholic Church, but it is undeniable that confession is a biblical reality that evangelicals don't practice at all like at all. And at least the Catholic Church is trying to find a way in which to practically obey that that version of, uh, that portion of scripture which uh which is admirable to me. So I guess what I'm saying at the end of the day is that the more I've looked into it the more I've found reason not to just um ridicule but I found reason to to admire the Catholic Church and um and what it has stood for throughout the ages. Nice. Yeah, that's great. Um and, and, I, and I, I I think that, that you know, that's, I think that's pretty common in a a lot of ways. You know, I I know very, there's there's really only kind of a fringe element of of Christianity that just hates everything about the Catholic church, you know? Um, And especially once they actually 
like you said, do a little due diligence and actually learn some stuff, um, it's, it's pretty hard to have that big of a problem with it. Yeah.